Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Tom Ross, the artistic director and one of the founders of Aurora Theater Company in Berkeley, which this fall begins its 25th season in operation. Tom Ross is a director. He's directed 26 productions, according to the website, at Aurora, worked at New York's Public Theater, and collaborated on projects with Larry Kramer and Jonathan Larson. What did you collaborate on with Kramer and with Jonathan Larson? Well, I was the person that actually discovered the play The Normal Heart. Well, I was at the Public Theater, and I was working for Joe Papp, and the co-director of Plays and Musicals Development, this huge box arrived uh, at the script, and inside this huge box was, I don't know how many pages, it maybe was uh, a thousand pages of plays. Eventually, it got wheedled down to The Normal Heart and a play called The Destiny of Me, which is like a sequel to The Normal Heart, or a prequel. It was in the middle of the AIDS crisis in New York City at that time. Larry was a saint to a lot of people and a scary wild card to a lot of other people. He was a rebel rouser. He wanted to see Joe and he, Pap and wanted to get this play produced. The thing with Joe Pap at the time was, it had nothing to do with AIDS, but the rule was he was not interested in any plays about sickness or illness. The idea was like, uh, do we want to give him the script or not? Long story short, he did read the script, worked on it, we produced the play. It was a very important play. I'm really proud that we did it. I was proud when I saw the revival of it at, at ACT a couple of years ago. That's still relevant and important work. Larry, he's still kicking. He's still around, which is amazing because he's, he's had bad health for a long time. There was a play. It was done by a group in North Carolina, Man Bites Dog Theater Company, and they took an essay of his, and they combined it with a speeches by Jesse Helms. This is during the NEA controversy when he was trying to stop the NEA. They turned it into a theater piece. He wanted Joe Papp to see it. Joe sent me down to North Carolina to see the piece. I went down there. I thought it was a wonderful agitprop theater. And we brought it up to the public theater and did very, very well there. And then the first show that I directed when I came to the Bay Area was the same piece. It's called Indecent Materials. I did it at Josie's Juice Joint and Cabaret. It used to be in the Castro. Ann Dara played Jesse Helms. I forget the name of the guy that played Larry Kramer in the second half. And then Ann came back as his sister-in-law. But it was a really interesting, cool piece. What about Jonathan Larson? Yeah, Jonathan. If I had stayed in New York, Rent would have been my show. I, I guess I was sort of a mentor to Jonathan. I was at the public, like I said, developing musicals and things. And I was writing rock musicals. I, I did a rock musical with Todd Rundgren when I was there. Jonathan came in, and he was really super talented and really nice. And we really hit it off. And he brought me a number of musicals of his. And then he started working on Rent, which I didn't know if I was going to like or not, because at the Public Theater, we had just done La Boheme with Linda Ronstadt. We sort of did a rock version of right. that, and I thought, oh, another La Boheme. But Jonathan came out here like three or four times while he was writing it, and he brought me demo tapes. I have all the original demo cassettes. And then he died. Total shock. He was a sweetheart. You, you mentioned that there were a lot of other musicals. Only one of them, I think, has been produced since then. There was one called Superbia, 
It's like a science fiction musical, and I don't think it's ever had a major production. Tick, Tick, Boom was one he wrote for his 30th birthday for himself. That has been done around the country. And yeah, I think it is only Rent, actually, and Tick, Tick, Boom. Let's talk, Tom Ross, about Aurora. Let's talk about the past season, because it's been a really good season. In particular, the how and the why and heir apparent, which just both closed. First, a question about the how and the why. Mm -hmm. Harry Upstairs is this tiny little theater that's, I guess, in your rehearsal room. Is that right? When we built the Dashiell Wing, well, we needed more office space, for one thing. So I have an office up there. We have a conference room in there. So we can have board meetings that are actually not in board members' homes, but we can have them in the theater. And we built this space to work on original work, to develop plays, workshop plays. And it just turns out that we were told it could also be a 49-seat black box. It's just something that's been in the back of my head for a while. So we started doing a couple cabaret shows up there, like Billy Philadelphia and Meg McKay, like two-person shows. And then we did a magic show, Christian Cadigal, last year. Then I wanted to do a play and just see how it would go. So Mark Jackson agreed to direct a play called The Letters in that space, a two-hander. And it went really, really well. I wanted Mark Jackson to direct in that space to start with because I didn't want people to think that room was a poor cousin of Aurora. I wanted to have the same directors, the same actors, the same quality. It's just in a smaller room. It's smaller than we were at the Berkeley City Club, which was 67 seats. Here, it's only 49 seats. So that was really successful. Then last year, we did Tally's Folly. Joy directed Tally's Folly, which also was hugely successful. We extended it before we opened. This year, I put the how and the why in there. Joy also directed that. We extended it a month before we opened. That's Joy Carlin. Joy Carlin, yeah. And how did you find the heir apparent? It's adapted by David Ives. He wrote Venus and Fur. It's probably his most famous play right now. We read reviews all day long and all over the country, all over the world, actually. It premiered, I think, two years ago at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C., where they had done a number of his works, and it sounded really fun. He had also adapted a piece called The Liar, which was a Moliere piece, I think, and we were interested in doing that originally. This was a couple of years ago. And then Marin Shakespeare Company did it. So since they did it, we didn't want to do the same play. And we reread it. And I don't really like verse plays. Like, we've never done Shakespeare at Aurora in 25 years. I mean, he's a very over, not overproduced, but everybody does Shakespeare. We don't even know the theater doing Shakespeare. And I'm not really into verse so much, but I start reading David Ives' version of verse. And it just made me laugh so hard. I loved it. And I loved all the modern things he throws at you in the, in the play. I liked the whole sensibility of it. Josh Costello, who's my associate, it's Josh's wheelhouse to do plays of that nature. So he really was excited about doing it, so we thought we'd give it a shot. I've talked to a number of artistic directors about how difficult it sometimes is to get plays, how mm-hmm. you're in competition. Mm-hmm. It looks like for next season, just looking at what you've chosen that you've kind of went around a a circular route looking for things that other people probably wouldn't necessarily know about? Well, yes, there is a big competition in town, in the Bay Area. And if you are only a 150-seat theater, it's even harder because an agent always wants his playwrights work in the larger houses to get the bigger royalties. So we have to wait for Berkeley Rep and ACT and Theater Works and Marin Theater Company, for example, all to pass on plays. This season coming up... Yeah, I sort of went around them a little bit. I went to England 
I was in London this summer. I wanted to see Temple. I was running at the time. It's the play I'm going to be directing at Aurora this year. In fact, it's the U.S. premiere. I can't believe we got it. And I couldn't get a ticket for it. It was, uh, you know, and, and but I got back and I finally read the script and I went, oh, yeah, we have to try to do this. And I, I was shocked that they were going to give us the U.S. premiere of the play. And the playwright's going to come over from London and everything. It looks like each year... You try to put in a an older play, is that correct? I mean, next year you're doing uh, The Real Thing. Right. Well, we try to do an eclectic season, and we have about 2,700 subscribers. A lot of them really want to see the older plays or plays that they know of or have heard of. So we try to give them the treat. Master Herald is, is opening right now, uh, for example. That's a, I don't know if you call it a treat, but it's certainly a play that they know by a playwright whose name they recognize. If it's had a major production in the Bay Area in 10 to 12 years, I, I won't do it. It's got to be longer than that. So the last production of The Real Thing was at ACT, which will be 14 years ago, I think. What is the maximum number of actors you're going to, because you have a fairly small space. The highest number of actors we can comfortably get on stage and deal with the dressing rooms backstage are eight. We've never really gone over eight. Sometimes I'll put a PA, a production assistant, in a costume <laughs> and give him or her a couple lines just to add that extra person. For Harry's Upstairs, are you just going to limit it to no more than two? No. There's two bathrooms up there, so there's two dressing rooms in a sense, right? So, yeah, next season there's also two people up there, but we haven't announced it yet, but we're going to have an improv group up there in a couple months. There's going to be five of them. That's going to be a little bit of an experiment to see if we can actually accommodate five people. (laughs) I I would like to at least do three-person plays sometimes. The sound and the closeness to the people just gives it this intimacy that is just extraordinary for any space. Yeah, Aurora was always known for that. Even in their 150-seat space, I think we're still known for that. But yeah, there is something about being that intimate to the actors that people just thrive on, our audience does anyway. How does it work for the actors? I mean, do they feel like people are on top of them? Are they comfortable with that space? Have they talked about it? In both of our spaces, you see the audience. You see their faces. You see when people are sleeping. People, please stop sleeping in theaters. It is so rude to actors <laughs> to see that. People fall asleep in the front row. I never can understand how they do that. And I, I know it's not even about the plays because the lights go down and the heads go down five minutes later. <laughs> but it's really just something to think about. And just think about how unattractive you look to the people looking at you also with your mouth open. But anyway, yeah, the actors do see the audience. You've got to train the actors, and sometimes the newbies, it takes them a little little while to just really turn, the, not, not ever to focus on anybody, actually. You know, you see the faces, but don't ever focus. If you focus on somebody, you can go up with your lines. Uh, it's happened every once in a while. Or if somebody next to you suddenly in the audience starts choking or coughing really hard, it can really hurt your concentration. It takes a talent to be in a space that intimate and to keep as real as I think our actors keep it. In the larger space, in the regular Aurora space, Uh you're dealing with long audience on either side and then directly in front of you, which means that as opposed to most other spaces, even the thrust at Berkeley, the Pete's Theater, it's mostly just forward and a little bit to the side. But this is really to the side. It's a completely different environment. Do you find that difficult when you're directing and how do the actors deal with it? A lot of it is being a choreographer because you've got to keep people moving. You can't stay too long in a space. Our audience expects to see actors' backs from time to time, but they don't want to just see a back for a long period of time. So there are things like we have Aurora back acting 
lessons. We have the Aurora Shuffle. I, I could demonstrate these things for you. But there are certain ways to keep things moving in a subtle way so that the audience can see you. There's also a lot of diagonals. You direct with a lot of diagonals there. As opposed to, let's say, an actor just facing each other face to face, you do it shoulder to opposite shoulder a little bit so that the person behind me can see your face and vice versa on the other side. Oh. So there's a lot of little tricks. Well, one of the tricks is when someone is talking away from you, it's harder to understand them. And I would assume that you've also discussed that on some level they need to project more than they would in a proscenium. Yeah, that, that can be difficult. Lynn Sofer, the major dialect coach in the Bay Area, either she was in a play I was directing and she gave this note, but she said a great visualization for the actors, and I always tell my actors to do this, is to think of your words as a rubber ball. Shoot them out of your mouth on the wall in front of you so that it hits hard enough that it bounces back over you to the audience to your back. So I like to give them that visual image to be thinking about when they talk. This is also, of course, a problem because a lot of actors these days are not necessarily trained like they used to be trained to throw their voices. That's right. That's right. It's something we work on all the time. And then we're in preview. You think you got it. And then there's 150 people in that room and it takes the sound down again. Because, you know, coats and clothes and just people. And so then you got to start getting the actors up again now with an audience. One final question before we move on to next season, discussing mm-hmm. next season. The Heir Apparent is a comedy that has to be played broadly. Right. But I find, not true with that play, I think they kept it under wraps, that too often when I see comedies being done around the Bay Area, I see too much mugging. Uh-huh. How do you work to maintain that balance between playing it broadly and giving it too much? Right. Well, Josh Costello directed that show, and I think he did do a wonderful, wonderfully inventive job on it. And one of the things he was working with his actors on it is even though it is in rhymed couplets and it's very silly and there's a lot of gags, that they had to find the reality of their situation, what their goals were. So I think that might help ground people somewhat. But there are some people who saw The Heir Apparent who complained that there's too much shouting. We get that a lot at Aurora, kind of no matter what we do. I asked Josh to kind of take a check on that. You know, the actors, their adrenaline starts pumping too, and then they kind of get louder and louder. And if they're not getting a laugh, I think what happens in a lot of theaters is if they're not getting their laughs, then they start pushing it harder to get the laughs. And it kind of just pushes the audience away further even, I think. That means that you need to have somebody almost taking notes once a week just to make sure. The stage managers, that's part of their job as well, is is to keep everything in check. Tom Ross... The final play of this season is Master Harold and the Boys. Starts June 17th. Takes place in South Africa. A white teenager and his family, two black servants. 1950 South Africa. It was a movie with Matthew Broderick and more recently one with Freddie Highmore. You know about either of those versions? Not really. I think I do recall Matthew Broderick in the show at one point in New York. What drew you to this play, and what drew you to the play doing it this year? Uh, I'm a big Fugard fan. I directed a play of his at Aurora a long time ago. Peter Callender, who's a great actor in the Bay Area, I know, was dying to do this play. Sometimes, like you know, there are different reasons why we do plays. One was Peter's interest. One, I, I wanted to do a Fugard play, and it's three actors. And then Timothy Near, we're so delighted to have Timothy. She's going to be making her debut. Uh, she was the artistic director of San Jose Rep for many, many years. And, and to have a, a director of that quality working in our theater is also really exciting. And 
it might be his masterpiece. I think it might be his best play, actually. It's a, sort of a simple story. It's this young boy, white boy named Hallie, and it play takes place in his parents' kind of a diner, tea house sort of a little place. And there are two black servants there who he's grown up with, particularly one of them, uh, almost like a surrogate father. And he has an alcoholic father, very mean and horrible, in the hospital. And he gets the news that day that his father's coming back from the hospital, which stresses him out to no end. And it just starts a series of situations and events that keep escalating. What the play, I think, is about is the ingrained racism that we all have just by growing up in a racist world and how hard it is to, to flee that and to get rid of that. The play does end on a hopeful note, so that's also positive. It's a, just a beautiful play. Let's talk a little about the plays. The first play of the season is Dear Master by Dorothy Bryant, who actually was a KPFA person a long, long time ago. I think that there was actually a reading on KPFA Mm. prior to it going to Aurora originally. Uh But that was the first show at Aurora? That was the show that inspired Barbara Oliver to start Aurora. There was not an Aurora Theater Company then. This is in 1999. Barbara Oliver, who is the founding artistic director of Aurora, was an actress at Berkeley Rep. She was getting tired of just playing nannies and grannies. She had a friend, Dorothy Bryant, who was working on a play about Georges Sand and Flaubert, their letters. They had never really met, but they had a wonderful friendship via letters. And Dorothy and Barbara and Ken Grantham, who played Flaubert originally, started with director Richard Rossi to work on this play. And this is before my time. I was still in New York at that time. They did it all over town. Then they found this little room at the Berkeley City Club, which became Aurora. And they did the show there, sort of site-specific show, not knowing it would become the Aurora or even a theater. It was a room where women played bridge, a very small little room. And it was a huge success. And they got wonderful reviews, uh, even in the Wall Street Journal. And it inspired Barbara to want to start her own theater company. And Georges Sand's name is actually Aurora. So Barbara took that name and started the Aurora Theater Company on that. And that's when she hired me. I had moved here. I started work doing like the Solo Mio Festival and, and certain uh, little theater things or the, the Larry Kramer play I talked about. There was an ad in Callboard. Somebody starting a new theater company. She wanted a general manager to help her with the business side. We met and hit it off, and that's how it's all started. So I just felt that the right way to start the 25th season to honor the founders and to honor Barbara and Ken and Richard and Dorothy was to start with where the theater started. What do you like about that particular play? What draws you to the play? Yeah, it sounds like it could be rather dull. These are two people basically talking letters to each other. But, of course, they're great writers and great thinkers of their time. When I was reading the play, I was thinking, too, that the time that they were living in, in France at that time, reminds me a little bit about what's going on now. I believe that we're in the midst of a cultural revolution in this country And I think there's resonance to what they talk about, the feelings about French politics, just their love of art. And one of the things that's so nice about the play also is that they were 20 years difference in age. He was in his 40s and she was in her 60s when they began this relationship. There's just something really wonderful, too, about seeing this man looking up to this elder woman to such a degree. And Dorothy has woven the piece. uh, So it's actually very exciting and and. Very vivid, and um, and we're going to have two really great actors playing the roles also. Is there a through story to it? Uh, no, it's just their relationship. It really is their letters. Dorothy didn't write things that weren't in their letters. She just edited their letters. Safe House mm-hmm. by Keith Joseph Adkins from Cincinnati Playhouse. Is this the second production then? 
No, this is the third production. Okay. It was done at Cincinnati Playhouse, and then it was done at St. Louis Repertory Theater. Keith Atkins is an African-American man. This is based somewhat on his ancestors, and it takes place in Kentucky, 1843, and these were free people of color. You might be free person of color in that period. This is before the Civil War, but you were not allowed to read or be educated. You were not allowed to have a business in your home, for example. What's had been happening in this house before the play starts is they had been a safe house running slaves through the house to get them back to Africa. They were caught and they were punished for that. So the end of their punishment is happening. And within the family, there were two brothers. One as a shoemaker, which was the background of the playwright's actual family. And the other one is more rambunctious, younger guy, very rebellious and doesn't care about security and having a business and that. So it's kind of a war between these two brothers with an aunt that's between them. Without giving too much away, a young female slave does make her way to their house. And it becomes a question of turning her in or helping her to find freedom. What drew you to it? The history of it. I really did not know about these kind of people very much. It's not really written about very often. That the writing, it had a very wonderful quality. There's some August Wilson, I think, feeling in it, uh, the historical nature of that. There's uh, some beautiful poetic moments in it. It's it's, uh, dramatic. It's exciting. It's well-written, and it's very educational. On some level, does this kind of speak to this season's Master Harold and the Boys, which is also about racism? Hmm. It is a topic that we've done plays about a lot at Aurora because it's such a big topic, especially in theater. In the theater world, there's just so much talk about gender parity and about racism. So we try to explore the politics of what's going on in our time and do relevant work. Berkeley is considered, you know, a liberal bastion here, but I don't want to do plays where we're patting ourselves on the back for being wonderful liberals. I like to challenge us to be empathetic with all kinds of people and confront some issues that we may not like to. Like a few years ago, I did a play called The Bright New Boise, which was about a fundamentalist Christian. And some of the pushback I got back from our Berkeley audience is like, we don't need to see plays about fundamentalists in Berkeley. That's wrong. We're Berkeley. It's almost free speech. We should be exploring the red state people as well as the blue state people. The Real Thing by Tom Stoppard, been around a while, first performed 1982, uh, about life imitating art, semi-autobiographical, and there was recently a revival, which was not a huge success on Broadway. What brought you to this particular play? Mm -hmm. I've never seen it. I love Stoppard. I saw it on Broadway when it originally opened. I was living in New York then. When we do our surveys to our audience, we always say, which playwrights do you want to see? And over the years, Tom Stoppard is the number one playwright people want to see. And we've never done a Tom Stoppard play. So once again, it's kind of this kind of birthday gift idea, our 25th birthday. I thought, let's do a Tom Stoppard play. And this one, it's smaller than a lot of his plays. I think there's seven actors in this one. A lot of his plays are just so huge. Maybe it's his most accessible play, in a way. He is kind of writing about himself as this uh, intellectual playwright with some love life problems. There were plays within the plays in this play, which is fun. A great role is for actors. It deals with politics and moral choices. A playwright who's writing a play in this play says that his play's writing is about self-knowledge through pain. And I exactly think that that is what Tom Stoppard is writing about in The Real Thing. It seems that if you look at Stoppard's work, putting aside the trilogy, which is more historical, Mm -hmm. but in a lot of his other works, he is looking at 
multiple eras happening at once. Yeah. He's looking at echoes between one set of events and another. So in that sense, this is kind of like Arcadia mm-hmm. in a weird way. There are great characters in this play, and they are all fully fleshed out. And they all have very strong opinions about, let's say, love. Everybody has this different kind of opinion about love or about whether people can be faithful to each other or not. It's written in just a very witty, sparkling, alive, and smart way. Lenny by Sarah Greenman, which is going to be at Harry's upstairs. Reifenstahl's older self confronts her younger self. Bay Area premiere. That came out of Seattle in the New York Fringe? Actually, it came out of Mills College because she wrote it when she went to Mills. And they had some readings of it here, although it's never been actually produced here. And then it's been produced in Seattle and and Portland. So this is the third production of it. This is a play I did not know. John Tracy brought me this play, who's going to be directing it. And I was looking for something for the Dachau again. And two actors, we have two great actors that are going to be in this. I'm not going to say who they are already. I've always been fascinated by Lini Riefenstahl. I mean, and, and those films, I remember being in college and seeing Triumph of the Will and Olympia. I was like, oh, my gosh. And a lot of younger people have no, do not know her at all. The people on my staff never have heard of her. So I think it's time to bring her back, too. But she was considered uh, one of the great filmmakers. In fact, Pauline Kael said she was the best female film director. But she was up there with Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock and, and all these greats. But what she was doing, she was making Nazi propaganda films for Hitler. What this play also brings out is that the aesthetic of her films, which is sort of a glorification of the human body, she's very much into the aesthetic of beauty, you still see around you in advertising all the time in a lot of the fashion ads. It's still very, very present. She's an interesting character. She was a young actor. She started as an actress. Then she got involved with Hitler, who liked her, and started making the, the Triumph of the Will, then the Olympia. And she denied that she had any idea of the atrocities that the Nazis were committing, you know, to her deathbed. Uh, I believe she died in L.A. She was over 100. Yeah, she was quite old. And, but always denied it, always said she was just doing her films, that's all she cared about. And so there's a lot of contradictory things about her. This play is different for what we've done in Harry's Upstage in that it's not realistic. There's a younger and older self, as you said. They're in an editing room, a film editing room, and they are reshooting scenes from her life and shooting them again and again until they get them right. And also what I liked about this play is that you actually do use film clips from Triumph of the Will and Olympia, and well, some of her early films that she appeared in. And I think projecting these films really huge in that space is going to be quite monumental and cool. Temple by Steve Waters. That's one of the ones you managed to snag from Donmar Warehouse. Fascinating idea. It takes place on October 28, 2011, in a church, and it's about the Occupy movement and the clerical hierarchy. Mm-hmm. This is the same Occupy movement that we had here in Berkeley and Oakland. The movement was going down to the financial district in London to set up camps with the tents and all that stuff. And the police kept pushing them away, pushing them out of there. And they ended up at St. Paul's Cathedral, which is one of the great landmarks of London, Christopher Wren piece, one of his masterworks. And they put their tents all around the uh, St. Paul's. This is based on reality, around the cathedral. It was so full of people and so unsafe that the cathedral had to close. They felt they had to close down for the safety of their uh, parishioners. And the thing about St. Paul's also was that it never closed during the Blitz. 
It was never closed during floods. This is the first time it was forced to close down. Additionally, they bring in about $20,000 a week from tourism. So what this play is about, it doesn't take place with the occupied people. It's behind the scenes inside the church where they're dealing with the situation and how to handle it. So these are all good, educated people dealing with these issues, probably the same way the city of Berkeley were dealing with the tents across the street from them, right? And, of course, this is a church. Well, it's like, what would Jesus do? But they're losing all this money. They're closed down. This actually caused a major fight within the actual church itself. Two people, major people in it resigned out of this. The third part is then the city of London is on them because they want to evict the protesters, but they want the church to sanction that. So this takes place in a 90-minute piece behind closed doors in the church while they're trying to figure it all out. I've talked to the playwright in England. He's wonderful. Like I said, he's going to come out and see the show. I'm excited about that. He's very excited we're going to do it. He said he didn't want to write a play about right versus left. He wanted to do a play about left versus left within itself. And that these are all highly educated, as I said, highly educated, good, moral people trying to do the right thing. So although certainly there is religion and faith embedded in this play, it's really a play about ethics and moral choices. And the final play of the season, Splendor by Abby Morgan, four women sit around in the house of a dictator while a revolution is going on in the city around them. This play is actually at least 10 years old. It was done at, I think, South Coast Rep in California a long time ago. And then it was just done at Dunmar. I had an ex-board member who saw the play there, and she said, oh, Tom, you got to do this. It's great for Aurora. And I had actually read the script. Plays can be really hard reads, and this was a very hard read. So what we did was I got Barbara Damachek, the director, and she got all excited about it. And we got a cast together of the four women, and we did it, worked on it for a couple hours, rehearsed it, and then read it to see if we could figure out the puzzle of the piece. And we did. It's not straightforward. It's sort of like a cubist painting in that the play reruns itself five times, but always from a slightly different perspective. And each time it gets tighter and tighter and more intense. And so you really get caught up in this this world, it could be anywhere. It's not. A, it's a made-up country. It could be Bosnia. It could be anywhere. We were casting it that way too, with with four very different women. So it doesn't look like it's any one particular place. Every time a vase breaks, the place starts again. There's a British journalist, a photographer, who's there to take a photograph of the dictator, the male dictator, hanging out with his wife, her best friend, and a translator, because the photographer does not speak the language of the people. So it's just these four people getting more and more claustrophobic and freaked out as they realize that around them, the city's going up in flames and the husband's not coming back home. It's very exciting and really different. Abby Morgan, who's wrote this play, if you don't know who she is, she's a major British writer. I'm also delighted to have have her uh, thing. She is a, really known as a screenplay writer. She wrote The Iron Lady oh. about Thatcher for Meryl Streep. She just wrote Suffragette, the Carrie Mulligan film. She wrote Shame, the Michael Fassbinder film, as well as plays in The Hour for British television. She's a really major writer. Tom Ross, when you look at the season, is there any of them where you look particularly and go, that's the one that I'm really looking forward to either seeing or being a part of. Sometimes we get plays and I I can't believe that we got the rights to it because we were so small. I remember way back at the City Club when we got the rights to The Weir by Connor McPherson. That was like we were just shocked that we ever got the rights to such a great play and that nobody else had picked up the ball on that one. Sometimes 
something happens in the world that makes the play even more relevant than you thought it was. That's happened from time to time. Uh, like when I directed The Best Man by Gore Vidal, it turned out opening night was the same night as Obama's inauguration. So it was like this, you know, just uh, it's kind of a perfect thing. It, it happens from time to time. Looking back over the past four or five years, is there any play that you think is like the one you're most proud of? I would say no. I think that's a that would be a really dangerous question to answer. I think there's there's been a lot of a number of highlights. I think one of the things I was really uh, pleased about is um, bringing Mark Jackson into the theater because I, I knew Mark way 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 back before I even knew him as a theater worker. He used to sell tickets for me when I did the Solo Meal Festival. But when Mark started working for us, he started bringing me like traditional plays. And I said, no, Mark, I've, I've got me. I've got Barbara Oliver. I've got Joy Carlin. We do all that. I need you to bring the crazy. And so our, the first play we did with him was the great production of Sala, Oscar Wilde's Salome that we did with Ron Campbell. That was really interesting because it was sort of a mini spectacle. We weren't really known for spectacles, but it had, you know, with Mark, it has a lot of movement and dance and music and lights and beautifully strange costumes. And I think that took us in a really exciting, fun direction. And do you feel that now with him on board that way that you're a little bit broader than you used to be in terms of what you're looking for? Yeah, I think so. I, I think, it, but it's more than that. I mean, part of my goal as artistic director is to keep growing the company and keep diversifying audiences and diversifying casts, try to keep the subscribers happy, but also to stretch us all into to new ways. Like I think Splendor is going to do that. That's a very different play for us. I think Lenny might also do that. It's not traditional. Ultimately, we like to do stories that are narratives that are about probably some brainy intellectual matters. I like plays about ethics always. That's how plays started, being about ethics and religion. So, yeah, we're always trying to expand our horizon with different things. Yeah, Lenny's going to be very different. Even seeing Dear Master, when we do Dear Master, which was our first show, um, we've all talked to each other. Kimberly King is also coming down from Seattle to play Barbara's role, and Michael Ray Wisely's playing Flaubert. Annie Smart's going to do the set for us, so it's going to be a very different... We're not trying to do the same production that they did 25 years ago. It's going to be a fresh take on it. When I went to your website, I saw something called The Submarine Show. Yeah. Two clowns... At right. Harry's Upstairs? Yeah, we did that a couple months ago. What I try to do every year is um, I've been doing like one cabaret-type show in the Dachau to just have fun and to bring in maybe a different crowd than we we're used to. Because I believe that once you've been in a space uh, that you've never been in, you might come back again because you're not afraid of it anymore. This was two Cirque du Soleil guys, the noisiest mimes in the world or something like that, and they did this hilarious show where they're in a submarine and they go to the bottom of the ocean and they go to an island with mysterious birds. And it was very successful. A lot of the theater audiences are getting older. Yeah. And there's actually a young person's theater movement, places like Piano Fight, Ubuntu in Oakland. Mm -hmm. Are you ever in touch with those people to try to kind of mix and match Aurora, which has been around a while, with these newer people? The companies that you've just mentioned, no, I have not seen their work yet. I want to get over to Piano Flight for, for sure and Ubuntu. They sound like they're doing really interesting work, and I want to definitely get over there. We mix and match. You know, John Tracy is a pretty young director, and so we have John Tracy. I had Desdemona Chang direct Rapture, Blister, Burn for us last year, so I try to bring in young directors in that way. Also, we're developing new work at Aurora. Um, I'm, we're doing some commissioning, and, uh, and we just did the Global Age Project for 10 years where we had young playwrights from all over the country fly out to Aurora every year and work on their work. 
much of those plays have been successful, including Ironbound, which just closed New I think it just closed in New York, won all sorts of awards. So, yeah, I do believe bringing younger people in and working with younger people is important. Tom Ross, for you yourself now, you're directing one show at Aurora. Any other directing gigs not at Aurora? You know, Aurora has taken up so much of my time. I pick the directors. I, along with the directors, we pick the uh, design teams. And I'm in all the auditions with the actors. When we're in rehearsals and previews, I'm there giving notes to the directors every night. I'm deeply involved with all of our plays. That I am actually allowed in my contract to direct another show outside the, the theater every year. And I have not really done that. Um, there is something I'm talking to somebody about. So that might happen. I'm involved in these six shows. You know, I'm not directing, directing, but it's a full-time job. But I would love to direct at a proscenium stage. Sometimes I am so tired of that deep thrust. Master Harold and the Boys by Athol Fugard starts June 17th. For more information on Aurora and the upcoming season, you can go to their website, auroratheater.org. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com. Or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>